I was outside in a park and I saw literally everyone playing Candy Crush. And suddenly someone approached me because they saw that I was also I had candy in my hand. They approached me asking them if I could send them some lives, a complete stranger. <laughs> and that was really one of these, oh my God, this was fantastic. Right, so we're going to crack into a quick fire round, Ricardo. Are you ready? Just to give our audience a little understanding of what makes you tick. So, university, academia, or university of life? University of life. Okay, go on. Why? What did you do? Did you not go to university? Did you just get straight into it? I, I studied economics, and at the end of my study, I thought I could finally read a financial newspaper. But I think that you need, basically from there, you swim in cold water. And I think that the most important thing is the experience you, you get. Yeah. Of course, over time, you also realize that actually many things you studied at university actually are quite of practical use, although they are theoretical when you study them. But uh, there is nothing that uh, can uh, uh, substitute yep. experience. Okay. And, and many mistakes. Of course. Okay, so time to alienate two-thirds of your entire friendship group. The UK, Sweden, or Italy? Italy. Okay, there you go. So you just offended everyone in the UK and all your Swedish friends, but never mind. Uh, so on that subject, AS Roma or uh, AC Milan? AS Roma. T-shirts or shirts? Sweatshirts. You were in a polo shirt though, right? Well, sort of, yeah. Okay, fine. Twitter or Facebook? Facebook. Interesting. We could probably talk about that a little bit later today. Uh, movies or TV? Movies. And you're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. Okay, uh, I would bring swimming goggles, I would bring a windsurf, and I would bring my phone. Very practical. Okay, you didn't bring a charger though, so you've got about 24 hours. Solar charger. Four hours if it's an iPhone. <laughs> Most inspirational person to you? My father. Okay, and the person you like least on the planet? I think it's a waste of time spending your time on who you like least, but this said, it's not a person, but in general, I do not like populism from a political point of view, meaning telling lies to get votes. And that's a bit of a risk. On the other hand, I think that it's important to understand why specific votes get given to specific uh, ideas. And, it can, and if there is a protest, really to really make, take this very seriously. But I don't like populism. Okay, and finally, an entrepreneur, grandfather of tech, husband, father, company builder. How, how do you describe yourself? What do you identify with the most? Number one, father. Number two, entrepreneur. Okay. Now, the story, the original idea, as I understand it, was to specialize in games that could be played on Yahoo. Is that right? Uh, that's right, yeah. Okay, well, times change. So launching just one year before Zuckerberg would launch his social network. Now, thinking long-term is one of your principles. So how important is timing and predicting the market? I think timing is very difficult to get right. What is important is to focus on the user at any moment in time and to focus on creating a unique experience for the user, whatever you do. And, and that is, is not so much a focus of timing, it's a focus on understanding deeply the user, understanding, of course, what is available to fulfill any kind of potential user need. And you need to think ahead and you need to have a feeling for what the user might want or might like. And often it's something which you cannot just ask a user because he doesn't know yet. So do you consider yourself a very curious person? I'm very curious, yeah. Yeah, okay, wonderful. Uh, can you retrace your steps setting up the business in the first year? So can you give us the audience who uh, probably every single time they go on the tube see Candy Crush and just think, you know, how is it that that is still so popular, etc.? What an incredible invention. Can you take it 
all the way back to setting up in the first year. Give us a bit of a history lesson. And so the, you'll feel a bit what it was like in the first year. The first year we financed ourselves. So I basically put in all the money I had saved. I gave away the car I had. I gave away the rented flat I had. I went to stay with a friend for two and a half years. In Italy, they say that uh, the guest is like the fish after three years. After, after three days, it smells rotten. <laughs> and imagine after two and a half years. But you showered, uh, right? It was a very good, yeah, I tried to, yeah, but it was a very good friend. Okay, good. Uh, but this was the beginning. So Where was, was this? In London? This was in London. Okay. Yeah. It was in London. And we went all in. And uh, we almost went bust after a year because my our savings basically finished. And we got an angel investment in the last, last few hours. And then uh, with that angel investment, we became profitable. In uh, January 2005, we started the company in uh, August. Basically, we launched the product in August 2003. And then after that, we scaled the business. We became not only profitable, we uh, rolled out the business in uh, first in, in Europe, then in, in the US. On the backing of that, we brought on board institutional investors at a valuation of 65 million, which at the time was an amazing achievement. I think still an amazing achievement at this time. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, it was a very important uh, mm. date in, in, in our history. And then everything went very, very well until 2009, when uh, games on Facebook really took off with Farmville. And that impacted heavily our uh, largest partner, Yahoo, where we were the number one games partner for them. Mm. And uh, we lost 45% of users from that channel within a year. So incredibly fast. And, uh, How many employees did you have at that time, sorry? 110. And what was the feeling like in the office when this new challenge just came up and you had this sort of um, panic? How did you address the team? You know, what was the feeling? Yeah, the most important thing, first of all, is it, it was not a secret, meaning, you know, it was very obvious. Mm. But the most important thing was not to tell beautiful stories, meaning, you know, everything is fine. Uh, we told things as they were. I said that, you know, look, this is where we are today. This is the key challenge. We need to bring our games to Facebook. And those are the five things we do. And we divided the team in two parts. Half of the company continued working on the existing games to make sure that we bring in revenues and generate uh, cash to pay the salaries. And the other, other half of the company focused on experimenting. So we divided the other half in five teams and uh, experimented around five different concepts on how to crack Facebook. And finally, after two and a half years, we, we managed to crack it. So how many people, you mentioned two and a half years, how many people did you have working on sort of cracking Facebook, as you say? Uh, we were 110, so we had uh, five teams of around eight people each. Okay. Uh, and this was the same time as Zynga, basically, right? So were you kind of going toe-to-toe with them? Zynga launched in 2007. And they, uh, they started in 2007. They launched Farmville in June 2009. And uh, we started experimenting on Facebook in 2008, but half-heartedly, when we really, really uh, focused, dividing, really putting our existing business on a lifeline, and investing really the key resources was in 2009. Mm. And um, so Zynga was already successful. And there were startups like Playfish and others, which were also uh, growing very fast. Mm. And so, but the key, the key learning from the time is you can actually keep the best people if you talk honestly and you treat them like adults instead of telling them, you know, beautiful lies. And that's what we did. And we told them, this is the challenge. Those are the things we're doing. We never ran out of ideas. And mm. at some point, putting the best people on the biggest challenges, we cracked it. And we launched first a game called Bubble Saga in March of 2011. And then we launched another game called Bubble Witch in, uh, 2000, in September 2011. 
And then we launched uh, another game. Uh, we launched Candy Crush in April 2012 on the web. And everything was fine. Or was, we became number two after Zynga. There was only one problem. Zynga had 85% market share at the time. And we were number two, but there was a big gap between us and them. And um, suddenly uh, they launched, they copied our games. They launched uh, a version of Bubble Witch, which at the time was our most successful game. And suddenly we saw that the, our reach on, on our number one game started going down. Mm. And, uh, Have you ever confronted Mark Pincus about this? Have you ever been in the same room as him? Are you guys? Oh yeah, of course. Of yeah, toe to toe, friends, frenemies. No, I mean he did, he he built a great company with yeah. Zynga, so you know, uh, great consideration for him. You know, it's a competitive market. Hmm. And then in uh, in uh, November 2012, we innovated again. So innovation is really key to succeed. We innovated again, launching a busy Candy Crush in a new way. So it was launched multi-platform, so you could start playing uh, Candy Crush on your PC. And then when you installed the game for the first time, you could continue from where you left off on your PC. So you didn't have to buy again all the same the same boosters and, and features you had already paid for. And that was something very new to the gaming world at that, that point, right? Entirely new in the yeah. gaming world. There were some technical challenges in order to do that. And so we innovated with that and that actually took us to the top of the charts. And then uh, we added marketing on top. In uh, Q1 of 2013, we invested about $100 million in, in marketing. And we continued with that kind of, of investment. Mm. And the combination of an amazing product, innovation on the, on the way how you can play it, and marketing done together took us to the, to the top of the world. You talk about these um, these things very casually, right? You know, we, we, we had $100 million in marketing here, and, you know, we, we value innovation. But at the top of the food chain at King is a decision maker picking his team and picking the right people for those roles. So I guess the thing that I'm really interested in and the unique insight, I think it'd be super valuable to hear about, how did you go about hiring the genius people that run those departments? Like, What is the unique talent, the unique thing that you would spot in those people that have genuinely such an innovative approach to each of those areas, whether it's product, whether it's design, creativity, or marketing? It started basically picking the founders. <laughs> Meaning, uh, we yeah. How did the founders come together? Actually, yeah. we'll ask that question first, if yeah, we can. Well, it's very closely linked. We knew each other from before, so we did a company together called Spray, which was a, an online portal back in 1999 in Sweden. In Sweden, yeah, uh, it went from 20 people to 800 people in less than a year. So one of these really wow uh, 1999 online stories, and uh, my founders were the chief creative from the time, the CTO and the best developers there were in the company. So it was kind of a sure bet. I had great admiration for them. And so that's how we started at the beginning. And I think the key ingredient is when you do things over time, you actually you collect experience. Sometimes you make some money, but the most important thing you collect actually are people, people you really admire. Mm. And the most important thing is never ever to be scared to bring on board people who are better than you are. That's the only way to build a company. That's the only way to grow. So which particular role did you feel someone was so much better than you? You know, when did you have that moment when you were like, my God, I don't think I could run this company without you? Every role. Yeah, good. Every right role. answer. Okay, so coming back to then that marketing challenge, you know, cascading down beneath them, how did you set out like sort of the profiles of the people you hire? I mean, again, I'm, the thing that I'm interested in understanding is to make so many things tick and come together at the right times so often. It is about the people. So how did you make those hiring decisions? Like, What were the key things? You know, what, what are some of the values that you hire under? 
Well, the interesting thing is I think you need to give responsibility to the people, also to hire their people. Good people hire good people. If you tell them who you want to hire for them, actually you take away this responsibility from them. So the way how I do it is I hire, first of all, people I respect highly. For example, the founders with whom I'm working. Mm. I didn't hire them, but we came together. And then to give them the responsibility to hire the best people. And usually when we started, the way to grow was to work with people we have worked with before. This reduces the risk. And then later on, we brought on board people who the people in our team had worked with before. So mm. it becomes a kind of a chain or, or what we know in some ways. Then after a time when, you know, we were 110 people when we launched on Facebook, when we launched on mobile, we were a bit longer than a year later. Uh, at the end of 2012, we were about 300 people. And then after we launched Candy Crush, we doubled the size of the team every six months. So to grow at that kind of pace, it was not anymore possible to just bring on board people you have worked with before. So what we did then is we introduced criteria, which we learned in our previous life when we were in consulting. And this was basically to have everyone uh, go through six interviews. And if one person disagrees, the person is not hired. So right. very, very strict criteria. We did at some point some, some fun analysis, fun, fun stats. And one of the stats, which I will not forget, is actually it's more difficult to get into King than to get into Harvard <laughs> in terms of number of applicants and uh, people we take. So it's not even University of Life, actually. It's University of King. University that was the right King. answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. 
Um, I have actually a question on um, social media that I picked up. So uh, someone's tweeted to find out and they'd love to know about the design process and any insights you can give. So um, from building Candy Crush, what were the key insights about what makes a product so sticky? Like, how did you go through some of that process? And I know this is a slightly more technical question, might require a technical answer, but I think it's something that people will be able to relate to. I'll try first to give a more generic answer, not just for games, but for any product. The most important thing is, first of all, that the, in this case, we talk about an app, is interesting for the user. So it's not about monetization. It's all about basically making sure, is this what I'm having in my hand useful? Is it fun? And we measure whether a game is fun or not by looking at one key performance indicator, which is retention. So we see, okay, of people, of all the users who install the app on day one, how many of those are coming back in day two? It's called day D2. <laughs> uh, then we look at, okay, what happens then after seven days? It's called D7. What happens after 30 days? It's called D30. And that's the most important indicator we look at. And then there are, of course, other more detailed analysis. For example, where do users jump off? Is, for example, level too difficult? So they go away. And did so you once, have to rewrite the rule book? Sorry, once you, once you got onto mobile, did you have to rewrite the rule book and the strategy for that from where you did on web? Absolutely. We continuously learn. We're a very data-driven company. So we, we try to learn and understand everything we do in the smallest detail. And this is number one. Once you get the retention right and the product and the fun, then number two is, of course, the business model. And that, then you can refine busy demonetization around it. And monetization is very important because that allows you to do marketing and to promote the app or the game. Mm. Uh, nowadays, the, the market is so competitive. There are more than 2 million apps in the store that unless you, uh, you can actually do also marketing for it, it's actually very, very difficult to stay at the top. Mm. And what is it about the company setup now? So coming from, you know, this is, is this the head office? Is Sweden the head office? How do you guys look at it? So you have this international setup, right? You've got Barcelona as well. well. We have, we have 12, 12 offices and uh, we have a very flat organization. So in London, we do marketing for the entire King Group and it's centralized. In Sweden, we do most of the tech, of the backbone. But then the games are developed in uh, different locations. So, for example, here in London, we do a, a franchise or a game franchise called Farm Heroes. Mm-hmm. In uh, Candy Crush is done... Uh, mainly out of Sweden, but now we also have components of Candy Crush or a game, for example, which is developed in Berlin and another game which is developed in Barcelona. What's it like in the, you know, at the top table of the, uh, or the King's Chef's table almost, you know, of the gaming world? Do you know all the founders of the other competitors? Are you guys all friends? Do you swim in completely different circles? Because it's like, you know, one of those industries where there's a very, very small amount of absolute out-and-out winners, right? Whereas in a lot of other industries, there's hundreds of top companies. I think, you know, uh, mobile gaming particularly is an area where there's really only three or four players worth noting, and you just happen to be one of them, right? I think there, there are quite a few players, but I think we know each other. And uh, it goes. it's not just games, it's in general, it's tech. I think that uh, there are several events where people meet, and, uh, and so it's, it's a relatively small world, I would say. Did you ever foresee yourself as the knight serving its king? And have you ever had any doubts about the name? What kind of feedback have you had throughout your career on this topic? I can give you a bit of a funny story about the name. Please do. Because originally we didn't start with king. We started with a, game, with a name called Midas Player from King Midas. 
and uh, the name is very difficult to pronounce. It's difficult to actually know how you exactly how you write it. And so we were always looking for a name which was shorter and easier to communicate. And so at some point in uh, 2005, we came across an English teacher in, in the US and his name was Peter King. And so we, uh, we after a longer negotiation, we finally managed to agree to acquire his personal website, which was king.com. Mm. And we paid him some money, which was attractive to him. But the second part of the deal was that he would be able to retain his email, which was peter at king.com. So I'm not sure. So you never hired a Peter again. So no, busy today. If you send an email, I think to peter at king.com, I think it still goes to him. So So if you could just send your feedback of this interview to peter at king.com, we'll be sure to track uh, any responses there. Is that fair, Ricardo? Well, uh, sending my best regards. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Ricardo would rather you send them to Peter than himself because you might be, uh, you might be slightly busier than Peter is right now. So, King seems to be, um, well, seems to be and is an amazing success story. But this is um, an audience of entrepreneurs who know what it's like to run a business. So we all know the ups and downs, the moments where you just don't think you're going to make it. So can you share with us what some of those uh, tougher moments were? What were the bumps in the road and how did you overcome them? And hindsight 2020 is a beautiful thing, right? So looking back on it now with potentially a sigh of relief and a smile on your face, can you reminisce some of those moments and share them with us? Yeah, we had uh, many of these moments. Um, Maybe before I tell you about the moments, I can tell you something which actually was an interesting, fun interview. I had once an interview with a journalist in uh, in Silicon Valley, and uh, he had interviewed all the biggest names in in the Valley. So I felt very honored. So I asked him, hey, you have interviewed all these amazing people. What did you see a red line in across all these entrepreneurs? And uh, and he said, well, you know, sometimes they're not the smartest. Uh, he was looking at me. I hope he was not referring to me. But the key red line is they are all incredibly resilient. So they never give up. And that's, I think, something which I can confirm. It was really, really key to our success. We've been a few times on the brink. Uh, so the, the line sometimes between success and failure is very, 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 very thin. And um, one of those was, as I said, it took us two and a half years to crack Facebook. Those were the toughest years of my life. Uh, We had to manage expectations and busy internally for the team, had to manage expectations for our investors and shareholders. We had some shareholders who basically sold their position just basically a month before we we cracked Facebook. Mm. That was really, really tough, a very tough time. Do you still talk to them? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, I always understand. And I, I, I never, some people left and I always told them, look, hey, let me know if I can be of help. I wish you all the best for the future. You always meet twice in this, in this business, in general, yeah. in life. Yeah, very true. Um, and I always say that, uh, you know, every person ha- wears two hats. One is a company hat and one is a personal hat. When you wear a personal hat, you also wear this hat for your family and, and you have responsibilities. And the personal hat always comes first. So when someone takes a decision, I always respect it for this reason. And I say, look, if I can be of support, let me know. And can you remember anything specifically, like a specific moment? Actually, I read, this is more of a funny one, right? But I read about a fax being jammed uh, on a very important day. Can you tell that story? Oh, I will never forget it, that day. It was really a day. So to give you some busy day. Give us the date and the context. Yeah, the day, the day was the day before Christmas uh, of 2003. So you have to imagine, we started in, in January working on, uh, on, uh, on the company and we put in all our money. We did two internal rounds. I had no more money left. 
and I couldn't put in more money in the company just because I didn't have more money. And so, but in the meantime, we were looking for financing. 2003 was a year which was very, very tough to raise funds, mm. uh, especially for online. Online was kind of not attractive anymore. And I had a discussion with uh, a few potential angels and investors, one of them being uh, Mel Morris, my former boss and the founder of Udate. Uh, which sold to Match.com, is that right? Yeah, he sold Udate to Match.com. And those funds were actually very important because there I made some money and I put this money entirely into King. But then basically he said, yeah, I want to support you, I want to invest. But he had a trustee structure, so the trustees had to send a letter, not him. And the trustees, you know, they needed to have a lot of confirmations and documents and they didn't, they didn't sign fundamentally. And we had to pay our creditors. We didn't want to go bankrupt with debts. Uh, we wanted to pay every penny we had for the creditors and the last money we had was actually the one we had in uh, on the day before christmas and the trustee said okay we're going to send a letter now don't worry so finally i was physically i was sitting on the floor i was lying on the floor and i had to go to the airport a few hours later they promised to send us this, this signed letter and it didn't come through at some point finally this is we're talking 2003 so they still used fax machines finally we had a fa we had one fax machine in the office the fax started coming through and in the middle of the fax, this was the signature page, the fax machine broke down. And the signature was on the wrong side, so we didn't get the signature. So I went completely <laughs> ballistic. Luckily, we were in a serviced office, so I went to the reception and I asked for another fax machine. But that's where you learn, even as a startup, never ever save on hardware. <laughs> Although, you know, now obviously doing a startup, the interesting difference between when you started King and when you can start a startup, now there's so much software as a service, everything is oh, software, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. you know, your startup cost would have been exponentially more and the running of your company would have been exponentially more than if you were to start it all up today. Yes and no. I think that the advantage now is not the cost because actually service, if you are on the cloud, it's actually more expensive than if you have your own, your own uh, infrastructure. I think the advantage now is scalability. So if suddenly you have something which is really, really appealing, and this is now possible through a mobile app, if you create a mobile app and you launch it and it's really unique, it might be picked up by Google or Apple, they might feature it, and suddenly you go from nowhere mm. to potentially hundreds of millions of users within a very short time frame. Now, if you want to build an infrastructure which can take this kind of growth, it's basically almost impossible. It's very, very difficult, it's very expensive. And uh, at the time when we launched, we could gradually build it up. So I think now this, the biggest opportunity is, number one, uh, you can have an infrastructure which allows you to scale with a very low fixed cost. And number two, you can actually create from day one an app which can have hundreds of millions of users within a very short time frame if it's really unique. So talking about the hundreds of millions of users, which of course has been uh, one of your greatest successes, how was the process towards IPO? Uh, you know, you hadn't done one before, is that correct? Yep. So this was your first time leading a company to an IPO. You know, is that uh, a memory you'll never forget? Was it a really long drawn out experience? Were there any moments where you're like, that was the moment I felt this, you know, complete exhilaration or were you just completely shattered and depleted by the whole thing? Oh, no, it was an incredible experience. It's an incredible experience, incredible can you, learning. Can you tell us some of the stories of, you know, that yeah. happened during the IPO process? Yeah, all, it was a very intense and uh, very fast process. It took us about, I think, six months from the moment where we decided to do an IPO to actually do the IPO. You have to prepare a lot of books, a lot of uh, information uh, with tons and tons of lawyers and bankers. 
So we went first through a process of selecting the, the bankers, selecting the lawyers, and, uh, and from there to work almost day and night, with teams working day, day and night on, on, on preparing this information. Then, uh, the, the, once the information was ready, you go. We, we went on a tour, I went to, to meet investors, which was super intense, uh, first in the US, then in Europe. And uh, we visited usually two or three locations, different locations every day. And the only way was to basically fly with a private, rent a private jet, yeah. which is actually much less fancy than what people think, because fundamentally you don't have time to sleep or to eat. And it's, it's relatively short, short flights in a very small uh, space. But it was an incredibly interesting experience. And then, Did you call uh, your dad up from the jet? You're like, Dad, I am on a private jet, and no, I don't want to tell you that it's not actually cool. <laughs> no use of phones also on private jets. So <laughs> we actually, we didn't have that. Okay. Uh, but actually, what was interesting is that any desire I had in terms of food was actually fulfilled by bankers. So I will never forget one day uh, we were on a flight from Milan coming back to, I think we went back to, no, back to London to present us in London to investors. And on that flight, before we took off, I said, you know, actually, what I would really love is mozzarella. And there is a restaurant in Milan, which does some amazing risotto, risotto zafferano. So the bankers went there, they picked the risotto up, picked the best mozzarella. And on that flight, I'll never forget that experience. It was amazing. <laughs> so those are these moments. In, and the then, most expensive PAs you could possibly have. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it, there's a very large fee from the banks when you take a company public. And that's part of the service, I would say. Yeah, but yeah. it was a great experience. One free risotto with every IPO. Yeah. And, then, and then we went public on the New York Stock Exchange. And that was, I would say, exactly like in the movies, meaning uh, the outside of the New York Stock Exchange, which is beautiful with these Greek columns, was covered with a, a huge king banner uh, showing our, our game uh, characters. And then uh, we had a breakfast in the morning. And then we, uh, we went on the, on the top of the, of the exchange with my co-founders and we, we rang the bell. And it's exactly like in the movie, the floor, the, the same characters, it's, it's really amazing. And to ring the bell, the bell is actually a red button. So it's electric, you press it and then suddenly boom, the bell goes off goes off and the market starts. Started, started it's trading. good to see that they followed your lead by gamifying the bell experience. <laughs> so that's fine. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, it was a, a very interesting experience, also the experience which followed, because you, know, you learn a lot, not during the easy times, but during more difficult times. Mm. And uh, we did the IPO on the back of an incredible growth of, of Candy Crush. But then we, uh, we missed the second quarter after we went public. Markets do not forgive, so the stock price tanked. And so, you know, it was, it was a more difficult experience in terms of how do you talk to investors after that? How do you manage expectations going forward? Which is basically very carefully being more conservative in what you, in what you or being very conservative in the way how you project the future. If I'm not mistaken, since IPOing, you've then been bought by Activision Blizzard, which is one of the biggest games companies in the world. What's that relationship like? Is that something completely new? Have you had to adapt your leadership style and adapt your whole outlook on the business? Or is it business as usual? It's just a detail. Oh, it's very important. I mean, the, you know, after we went public, we got approached by, by Activision. And uh, I knew Bobby already from before. And besides the price for the investors and shareholders of King, a key consideration, because we were also in discussion with other parties, was the home, to have a good home for the company. Mm -hmm. So that when I would tell, when I would give the news to the team, I could say, hey guys, I have great news. And then that's exactly why, that's a key reason for us 
actually going together with Activision. If you look at Activision and the history of the company, it's a very entrepreneurial company. And Activision is not just one company. It's actually managed very much as a holding company with Activision Publishing, Blizzard, and now King at the core of the user proposition. And we are managed very independently. So we do our own marketing. We create the games. No one is telling us what games we should create. And then, of course, we, we also work with the other parts of the companies, but talking directly to the, to the other, other divisions yep. in order to see what can we do together. So there's been a lot of conversation, I guess, more zeitgeist movement in the last two to three years about what um, our addiction to our mobile phones is doing to us as humans. And, you know, uh, I went to a talk the other day by the author of Sapiens who was talking, you know, we now live in a time where actually 51% of our life is lived digitally, which is unprecedented and never happened before. Obviously, key to Candy Crush particularly success is trying to understand how to create, you talked about it as D1, D2, D7, D30, which in itself is how do we engineer an addictive but enjoyable experience? So the question is, how do those conversations sit internally? Is that something that you guys discuss and has that conversation sort of changed? So from the start, I presume it's engineering with purpose to create that kind of success. And then Interestingly, from a public relations point of view, um, there's been quite a lot of media backlash in anything addictive. You know, it seems to have gone completely the other way. So how do you view that as a company? So our games are designed in a way that you can play the game just for a few minutes. They're designed for a mobile usage, Mm -hmm. meaning uh, mobile is often used in retail moments of time. And so we want to, all of our games are structured in a way you can play them just for three minutes, you can complete a level of Candy Crush. That was super, super important. Um, so we're not designing games where you have to be on a game for hours and hours. You have to be on a game for at least, let's say, for three minutes and you can complete a level. I just want to interrupt you in case my fiancé is listening. You're not meant to play it the whole night and every morning. Uh-huh. So you're supposed to dip in and out, like I told you. So, you know, the whole whole evening, every single evening, is her playing Candy Crush. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what we do is, I mean, I'm sure she knows, what we do is uh, the game works in a way that you have five lives and every time you do not pass a level, you lose a life. Now, after you lost the five lives, actually, we stop you. And we stop you and we tell you, so if you want to replenish your lives, you have to pay something, 99 cents. But otherwise, you have to wait. And you have to wait usually 20 minutes. So we are not really saying you should actually continue to play more. We put a natural break in it. Before we move on to um, you as uh, as a person and your daily routine and life, can you tell us what, what is the proudest moment you've had building the brand? What is that number one stands out? You'll tell your grandkids if you had one sentence about the best moment, what would it be? I think probably the best moment when I realized, oh my God, what have we achieved? Uh, what have we done? Is was actually in Hong Kong. This was basically in... Uh, December, January of uh, 2012, 2013, so January 2013, this was shortly after we launched Candy Mm. on mobile. And I was outside, uh, busy in a park, and I saw literally everyone, everyone playing Candy Crush. And suddenly someone approached me because they saw that I was also, I had Candy in my my hand. You were in a King t-shirt. No, I wasn't (laughs) in a King t-shirt, but I had Candy Crush. And they approached me asking them if I could send them some lives, a complete stranger. (laughs) And that was really one of these, oh my God, this was fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. So we're going to move off the King story and onto the Ricardo story a little bit more now, so you can can relax. So (laughs) what does a typical day look like for Ricardo? I usually travel, I would say, almost every second week. Uh, because we have several offices in uh, in Europe, but also in the US. 
so I travel a lot. Uh, we also now travel uh, this week. I was, sorry, last week I was in Los Angeles, for example, in meetings with the Activision, Activision leadership and also the other uh, division leaders. Then uh, it's, it's many meetings. So it, there are meetings regarding the product. We review how are the, the live games doing, how, where, how are we doing on, on new games, new game concepts reviewing the marketing we have sales calls where we look at the figures of the how's the business doing uh, we look at uh, hiring we have people focused on on key hires uh, specific people so we, we meet there to see how are we doing well who should we hire next um so many many meetings you seem i know of course this is you know a nice relaxed morning but you seem like a very calm and collected man what do you do to unwind do you you know do you go to the gym do you run do you meditate mm -hmm. For me, the key way how I unwind or how I relax is actually doing sports. Uh, so I like swimming and, uh, and then I go to the gym. Okay. I'm a personal trainer and uh, I try at least once a week to have a personal training session. And then, uh, and then over weekend and usually on Saturday, I try either to swim or go to the gym again. So yeah, I'm well, great at meditating. <laughs> <laughs> I've just noticed your watch is fast. Is that for a reason? Uh, yes, it's 15 minutes ahead. Yeah. A good observation because I always had it like this, because it gives me 15 minutes to be on time. Usually it's, you know, when you are out of time, uh, it's by not much, 15 minutes, either because of traffic or because you tend to do things until the last moment. And this gives me the, the margin of error. I hate to be late. Yeah, it's a good hack for anybody yeah. listening. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, what I think is important in, um, in any entrepreneur's journey, and especially the ones that come as far as you do, is giving back. And I read that you're a trustee and founder of the P10 Research Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what about it is so important to you? Well, you know, basically, I think that um, there's an entire other area rather than just digital. And it's, there's amazing progress happening in life sciences. And I'm investing in, in an area, which is genetic research, helping... Uh, rare genetic diseases which affect uh, children, for example. And it, it's, a, it's an amazing area. And I think that there are amazing people that are working in this area. I think that over the next 30 years, we will see the biggest changes in the human development in, in life sciences. And How? I'm just trying to get busy to, to do a bit of help a bit with, uh, with the funds I, I generated. And you've once said, you know, coming back to Italy, you've once said the, um, the lack of technology advancements in Italy wasn't due to lack of creative ideas or funding, but a reticence to target international customers and international markets at the early stage of a startup, right? So we live in a global economy with technology bringing markets closer together, and with that comes volatility, of course. So do you think it's about being bold or being smart? You know, do you believe in the long game? And what advice would you give to startups that choose the right markets to sustain them? You know, this international opportunity that digital provides, what would you... Well, let, let, let me give you the concrete case of why I think in Italy, there's a huge opportunity. Mm. And this might apply also to other countries or specific other people. I think that the amount of venture capital currently invested in Italy specifically is very small in proportion to the size of the population. Now, I have a fundamental belief that is that in every country, the percentage of smart people is exactly the same. And this applies to countries, but applies also to genders. That's why I believe that DNI, diversity and inclusion, is a key opportunity for us to be able to recruit amazing people and for the industry to bring on board amazing people because the percentage of women working in industry is much smaller than in other industries. And so uh, we are missing out on a huge opportunity to bring actually amazing, smart people on board. Now, 
what is the reason why in Italy there is so little investment in, in tech is because most companies, startups who start in Italy, they, when they launch, Italy is a, has a size of a market which is not small, not huge, stuck in, in between. So when they launch, and most people, when they launch a startup, they focus on launching a startup purely focused on Italy. Mm. And when they do so, you always start a startup with a new idea, otherwise you wouldn't launch. But they check if the idea is new often only in Italy. They don't check if the idea is new, for example, in Germany or in Europe or in the US. And if they did it, they often would find that, yeah, maybe it's not new in these countries, so there's no point. Uh, they should immediately change idea from day one. And so you, you, they start with an idea which might not be new abroad with a, a business plan which reflects the opportunity, which is much smaller than if they launched on a, on a European or on a global scale. And therefore, uh, with a smaller business plan, a smaller opportunity from even purely on paper, they will only, this, this will be reflected in a lower valuation. Very often, it's not going to be interesting to foreign investors. They will only have access to local investors at much worse condition, lower valuation. And so even before a line of code is created purely with the business plan, they're already screwed. What's the best piece of advice you could give to our listeners starting up today? Start something which is really new. So to innovate and focus on, on the user, trying to understand whether how to make an impact on the user, so how to surprise the user. And, uh, and secondly, I would also advise them, if possible, to launch something on mobile because it's a platform which really allows to reach many, many users and to develop at a cost which is very low. Final question. What is the area of humanity or innovation that most interests you and do you see yourself finding a way into that in the far future? Well, if you... Look what I do next to my main job, which is King. I do two other things, actually three other things fundamentally. The first one is we set up with my co-founders a, an angel fund called Sweet Capital, where we invest in we do angel investments in uh, mobile mobile companies. It's only our money, so it's a way for us in brackets to give back because we're trying to really support and help others to succeed with the learnings we had and the contacts we have. Secondly. I set up a uh, charity, a foundation, to basically invest in rare genetic diseases, which is an area which I'm extremely passionate. I have a team working on that because my knowledge is not enough for that. So really special, specialized people. And the third area is try to help my, my, my country, Italy, to basically improve on the technology side. And my key belief is trying to change this. The focus when someone starts a company from local to global, uh, and that doesn't, doesn't cost a penny. So... Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, Ricardo. Been an awesome guest. Thank you. Next week on Secret Leaders. It's like watching this slow motion car crash. This dude has a billion dollar company on his hands, but he's just not running it correctly. He basically had this 800,000 bitcoins was like stolen over the course of like two years and he just never checked his cold wallet. It just makes no sense. That was Jed McCaleb, a proper secret leader. You won't have heard of him, but if you know your cryptocurrencies, then you sure as hell would have heard of the ones he's founded. And as the co-founder of Ripple, the second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin, I think it's fair to say he's got a story worth telling. And he does open up about some of the crazy stories that have happened to him in his journey. So you know the drill by now. Tune in or you'll miss out. (laughs) 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host. That's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media. And if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode. And that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders 1 on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.